Hi, welcome to Juxtapod. I'm Mariam Zaidi. I'm joined today by Dr. Nisha Thampi. She's a pediatric infectious diseases physician and the medical director of the Infection Prevention and Control Program at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. She shares how she found her passion for pediatrics through conversation and connection. Dr. Thampi talks to me about COVID-19 in the classroom, and she shares an interesting perspective that looks at schools as an essential service. She also touches on the impact of growing up during a pandemic and shares enlightening information about the safety of schools along the way. Outside of her career, Dr. Thampi developed Wash Your Hands, Brother John, which is an informational song that helps kids remember the WHO's six steps for hand washing. She shares the important implications this song has had in teaching positive hygiene practices. She ends off by sharing some insight regarding the parents' role in a changing medical environment and the specifics of pediatric COVID-19 cases. Here's my conversation with Dr. Thampi. Hi, Dr. Thampi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. I'd like to get started just by asking you about your background and how you got to where you are. I want to ask how you got involved in pediatrics and whether you've always had an interest in working with kids or if that kind of evolved as you went along with your career. Uh, great question. I, um, I did my undergrad in the arts and science program at McMaster, and so I was from an early age interested in and engaged in conversations around um, social justice, equity, health and human rights. And a lot of the times in our conversations would be the rights of the child and the voice of the child and the, and the people who represent the voice of the child. And so it was a natural fit for me to look towards a career in pediatrics, uh, recognizing in myself an interest in being a physician. It, but it, but to be honest, like one of the reasons that I'm working with you is because I remember being that student mm-hmm. who loved hearing the stories of yeah. other people and to be able to appreciate that there's not one straight, narrow path mm-hmm. that is predictable to getting you to a point where you feel like you're making a difference in this world. And so for me, the joy of my education was that I, it was very much in the moment. So in the back of my mind, I was passionate about issues affecting children and by extension, their families and their communities and the opportunity to impact the life trajectory of a child, whether it's at an individual level through clinical practice or at a population level through public health and, um, and, and my research. But it was really about the joy of learning in that time. So, you know, my bachelor's in the arts and science program was really about engaging with people who came from different paths of life who wanted to do, uh, wanted to have different careers. And then in medical school, really uh, learning about the, the wonders of the human body and pathophysiology of disease and about the incredible impact of medications, including and especially anti-infective therapies. And then when I was uh, when I did my residency in pediatrics, again, like learning all about the 
the different parts of how children's bodies work, which is not the same as how adult bodies work, um, as well as recognizing the role of the caregiver, you, you know, a parent or a guardian, um, and their influence on the health of a child, you know, not just in the hospital, but beyond the hospital setting. It's really interesting how childcare is not this independent thing that we look at the rest of healthcare. You know, it's it's influenced by the parents, the doctor, the children themselves. It's kind of more of a blend of all these opinions and perspectives rather than just that person themselves that's sitting on the hospital bed. That's well, all I, and yeah. I, no, no, and I think your point is is underlined by what we've seen in the last few months with this pandemic, right? So, you know, children, COVID-19 is not a disease that that generally affects children as uh, significantly as it affects adults and the older, frail adults in our community. There are a few children, very low proportion of children who end up being in hospital with COVID-19. Um, oftentimes they have other medical conditions that can predispose them to uh, significant illness. And there have been some deaths. They are much more rare than among adults and the elderly. And yet, when you think about how much children have been affected by this pandemic compared to what happens when they are infected, you can see that there's a significant imbalance, right? Where, uh, whereby we have school closures, activity restrictions, and a, uh, and a basic upheaval of all that they've known to be familiar, but it's been to, to keep our community safe. Um, that's how we've, that's, that's how it's been shared with, with children before. And that responsibility that children have now been given to uh, to, to protect their families, to protect their elders, to protect their friends. That's fairly new in their, in their lexicon of understanding who they are as citizens in their community. And for, you know, for many children, they embrace it because kids are better rule followers than adults. And, and they like to be part of a positive message but it has also led to significant anxiety and fear over over getting COVID-19 and transmitting that infection to their loved ones at home. It's, you know, in that way, it's been it's been very hard to hear the stories from families and from children uh, when when I when I meet with them clinically, but it's also important to talk through these emotions and to acknowledge them, to to acknowledge that adults are also having those hard feelings of uh, guilt, fear, sense of responsibility, and, and you know, that, that can be very reassuring to, to children to hear that they're not alone and to have small, measurable, and feasible actions that they can take that are positive actions that they can take um, to make a difference rather than stating it as a negative. For example, great to see your mask on, great if you can keep your mask on, rather than don't do this or don't do that. When I see kids um, on the street, you know, young kids as young as five years old wearing masks, I put myself back in their shoes and think when I was that age, I wouldn't have even been able to think about why I was wearing that or let alone, you know, keep it on and seeing all my friends do it. 
I even see, you know, kids walking home from school and, and they have their masks on. And I think back to when I would just walk with my friends and not think about all these things that kids are, are having to think about. Um, and they have this new responsibility. And like you said, not wanting to bring home the virus to their grandparents and their parents. That's associated with a lot of anxiety and fear. In your practice and in your role at CHEO, have you noticed that your approach interacting with children has been altered in any way due to COVID-19 or has your role changed? I have to say that I commend parents who have been living in this pandemic with their children because when you see that child who's walking around with their mask on and they're having a conversation and they're smiling and they're, you know, they're in that moment uh, looking like they're coping really well. I I say that, that that credit goes to their parents or to their to their guardians and individuals who are giving them that positive reinforcement. And that's also who we speak with a lot when we're in the hospital, right? Um, our relationship is not just with the children who are our patients, but it's also their parents and their support networks. So in the way that we've interacted with them, that that has so that has changed in some ways. When we have a patient who's admitted to hospital and there's a question of COVID-19 or a test that's pending, we wear additional precautions to to protect ourselves from picking up the infection from them. And those additional precautions are pretty much the same as what we would have worn uh, pre-pandemic if they had come in with another with with the same signs and symptoms concerning for another respiratory viral infection. The real difference is in the outpatient setting. So outside of admissions, when people come to see us in our clinics or they're going um, through the hospital to get blood work or diagnostic imaging, in that way, I think the hospital environment has changed because now when you walk in, uh, parents have to fill out a screening questionnaire to ask about whether their child or themselves have had symptoms or been exposed to someone with COVID-19. Even before their appointment, they may get called with screening questions to ask if they have symptoms or have um, been exposed to, uh, been a close contact of someone with COVID-19. So that's one difference that the kids can see. Upon entry, they have to wear a mask if they haven't already been wearing, but you know, at least in, in Ottawa and in other cities in Ontario, since this has been the way of life since the summer. So, you know, even before kids started schools, we were in our community getting used to these masking behaviors to physical distancing and washing hands, which are the three key interventions that we have in our hospital setting too. So we make sure that there is alcohol-based hand rub easily accessible and, and frequently accessible along their, along their path, as well um, we have screeners at the front and we have all our staff and as well as the families in masks. And then when the child sees the clinician, the staff will also wear eye protection. And that's an added level of protection that's been recommended by public health when when we cannot maintain our physical distance. And that is in general how we practice medicine by by examining our patients less than two meters away from them. And so that's the that's the recommended additional protection. 
So there's a lot of changes for you and your colleagues in the hospital setting, um, but not all the precautions for COVID-19 are taken inside the hospital. You worked with a team to develop Wash Your Hands, Brother John, to help children uh, remember the words of proper hand hygiene technique and to prevent the spread of common infections before it's too late and while they're in their school setting. Can you tell us a bit more about the inspiration behind the song? So alongside my career in infectious disease and infection prevention and control uh, in pediatrics, I'm also a mother to two young children. So I think about hand washing fairly often and I've observed behaviors in our hospital and in the community, in the hospital among adults, of course, but in the community among children. And one thing that I was struck by was that you know, we, we took the time in medical school and onwards to teach people the World Health Organization's six-step technique for handwashing. And children didn't have that same opportunity to learn. And why would they? I mean, it was six steps that were, you know, not very easy to remember. And I also observed that, you know, kids learn really well when there is music. One example is the alphabet, where they sing the ABCs before they actually learn their ABCs, and they learn about body parts through the Head and Shoulders song. And so I thought about making a song to that we could better remember the six-step technique. And it was meant to be for children. It was actually co-developed with my daughter who um, have like the, the English version and the, and the French version, and we you know, tried it out on her on her little brother and and it really stuck. And and you know what I what I really like about it is that it is a song that recites the six steps of the WHO's hand washing technique that's recommended throughout the world. And because it is reciting the steps, it's uh, what we would call a musical mnemonic and it's auto-correcting. So a child may not remember the hand gesture, you know, step by step, but because they're singing it and they've learned the words to the song, they can correct themselves if their if motions don't match the lyrics. We'll play the song for our listeners here, and it's also available for listeners to access on the Chio YouTube channel. Scrub your palms between the fingers, wash the back. Wash the back, twirl the tips around, scrub them upside down, thumb attack, thumb attack. As you were talking, I was thinking about how in my second grade classroom, my teacher brought out a blue light and she showed us all the germs on our hands and we had to go to the bathroom repeatedly to wash our hands. And I'll never forget that. I usually think about that now, even when I am washing my hands. So Children now are learning about washing their hands and hygiene practices in the context of a pandemic. What's the benefit of this or, you know, what kind of long-lasting effects do you think this will have on this generation of kids? That's a great question. And I think it's so instructive that you've had this memory with you since you were in grade two. I think it's really important for people to have a sense of control in their daily motions in the context of so much uncertainty in their world. And so much of what we do in infection prevention and control and public health 
is about being mindful of your actions and how they can protect yourself and other people around you, right? So even, even in the absence of a pandemic, when we're getting our colleagues to wash their hands and put on personal protective equipment, it's to minimize, it's to reduce their risk of being contaminated by the germs in that specific environment, whether it's a patient room or another part of the hospital. So in, in the same way, hand washing, it's a deliberate and thoughtful action uh, that, that children are being asked to do more now than ever before. And it should be easy and fun to do for it to for it to become muscle memory in the long run uh, so that you know even for me now like i find hand washing to be almost meditative it's a, it's a point in time where i'm where i you know i have the the steps already as muscle memory and so i end up taking those 20 to 30 seconds while i'm washing my hands to think about what what needs to be done for that patient or in that situation. So there's a there, I think there's a mindfulness component that's great to to have early on, but it also gives children an opportunity to have some control when so much of what's happening around them is out of their control. That's really interesting. Um, so amidst all the anxiety and things like that, we're offering them tools to actually mitigate the situation and approach it with the skill set that they already have. They just have to learn a song or practice washing their hands properly, and they can actually take these steps to help and prevent the spread. So that's, that's also an example of positive reinforcement, right? So, you know, it's going to be really hard for a kid who's been picking his nose for the last three years to get him to suddenly stop without, and, and despite saying, well, if you pick your nose, then you might infect yourself with COVID or you might give infections to other people. Like there's, there's a lot of guilt related language that a lot of parents have used and, and I don't fault them for using it because it's so exasperating when you see your kid picking their nose all the time, but it's not necessarily going to affect the change that we wish to see as parents. However, getting them to wash their hands is a positive behavior and it's a protective measure, right? So, well, it looks like we're not gonna get this kid to stop picking his nose, but we can get him to wash his hands afterwards, whether it's with soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub, and that reduces his risk. Of, trans of either getting infection or uh, transmitting it to other people. I also want to ask, uh, so schools have been open for four months now. There's kids from all different homes, different habits, different approaches to the virus um, coming together. Have there been any trends or observations in Ottawa that you've seen around you or even in the rest of the province that have surprised you? How has that gone? Yeah, so one of the pertinent positives about um, kids being back in school is that we haven't seen the broad infectious disease activity um, that we would usually see at this time of the year. So by mid-December, we should be, we would expect to see a lot more admissions related to infectious diseases, uh, respiratory viral infections 
that would be circulating in the classroom and brought back home and uh, shared with younger family members or older family members. But we haven't seen that. We actually have seen very little activity related to influenza and RSV, which is our our most common uh, respiratory viral infection in young children. And similarly, where there have been COVID-19 cases related to schools, it's been, you know, one or two cases, like very little transmission in the schools, which to me speaks to the effectiveness of our public health measures in the school setting. I would suggest that schools could have had more safety measures before the pandemic, and there's less tolerance for infection transmission in schools now than there was before. I want to ask if we're, because there's kind of this misconception that schools being open is dangerous and we're taking a really big risk in doing that when university students, college students have easily transferred to online school and we're not taking those same steps with younger children and high school students that were intercepting this logic of striving for elimination of the virus in general. Is that a misconception? Um, Are we actually taking the appropriate measures in having schools open to eliminate that possibility of being a really dangerous spreading ground for the virus? That's a really important question. And the reason why I think that's really important is because historically, parents have seen schools as places where Yes, children learn, but they also offer a childcare opportunity, right, for the for the working parent. What's come to light during this pandemic and what anyone who's been working in global education, especially in disrupted environments, would be able to speak to is the value of school, of in-person learning in the overall development of the student. And that cannot be replaced by by school closures. You know, there there may be some parents actually who who are able to meet the needs of that particular student in a home learning environment. But we've seen already a loss of an expected loss of productivity, a loss of literacy, and in other parts of the world, children who will never be able to get back into education because of competing demands in the home uh, or you know complete disruption of their of their academics and so i would offer that schools are an essential service because they're an investment into a population that we expect to give back to our community and our economy so what we invest in them we can reap the rewards downstream the corollary is what we don't invest now will be will be a lost value downstream but it has to be recognized that in the context of a pandemic we would expect that these that these spaces where students and staff are congregating should be made safer and that's what has been impressive throughout the summer and the fall is the constant advocacy for schools to be safe learning places and that's been something i think that's brought together many sectors of society recognizing the value of schools, both to the student, to the family, and to the economy, uh, and also the need for them to be safe places. 
it's interesting to look at education as an essential service. I think that's an important conversation to have and an important point to bring up. Just closer to home, my brother's in grade seven and there was a COVID case in his classroom and so immediately things went online, but now he just learns once a week and they are going to plan on transitioning back to school after the break, but obviously my parents are a bit anxious about sending him back. Do you have, you know, any advice or insight that you can offer to parents who are coping with this decision of balancing what's right in this time of uncertainty? I think that's a really hard question to answer in a broad brush stroke because in a period of uncertainty, we all fall back to what makes us feel safe. And what one person's threshold for safety will be different from other people's thresholds for safety based on their life experiences and what they understand of what's happening. So recognizing that you know, we're asking parents to send their kids to in, in-person learning in a different context than what they've been used to. I think transparent communication about the safety measures is key. And I mean, I can speak to what's been happening in Ottawa. I do think it's been fairly transparent from the school boards and from Ottawa Public Health about the safety and health measures that have been implemented in schools. And there's also the responsibility of the parent. So I'm not specifically speaking to your mom here, but I do think that, you know, given that schools reflect infectious disease activity in the community, and particularly in the homes where kids are most likely to get their infections, it's really important for us as parents and for individuals in society that are mixing to do that mixing safely, which is outdoors where it's much better ventilated by wearing masks uh, and keeping our distance. And of course, with hand washing. And if a student is identified as being a high risk contact, I would strongly recommend to parents to get their, their children tested because it's really important for us to understand where COVID is being transmitted in the community so that we can improve our public health response to contain the virus in and outside of the school setting. But at the end of the day, I can appreciate that everyone has different risk tolerance, you know, and and I have to say for myself, like I have been reassured by the prevention measures that are in place and the constant communication that we get from our boards and public health unit as well as the response that we have seen when we've had cases in schools and the and the constant improvement in that response process uh, in schools. I would love to see some of these principles applied to schools in the future, like in the post-pandemic period, because I think we can acknowledge that schools were not necessarily safe before. Like we had, like I said, kids with runny nose, with cough, you know, and with fevers coming in. And I think that's added to the emotional baggage around schools, because as parents, we recognize that we've seen these sick kids at schools before. How are we not going to have them come back? Well, you know, that that involves a multi-sectoral response. Like it's not just about the testing and about the tracing, which are, you know, within 
the domains of public health and our community assessment centers and lab partners. It's also about the isolation and the supports that are given to families. And that's from employers and, and the government to, to support staff to be able to work from home or, or uh, take the time off with paid leave so that their child isn't coming to school sick because of question of job security or food security. We can look at an issue, you know, with a finer lens, but eventually we have to realize that there's so many factors that influence the way that we should approach the issue and um, influence how that will look in our in our society. You had just mentioned in your answer that it's important for parents to check up on their kids and, you know, get them tested if possible. But this process of yeah. having asymptomatic testing seems really efficient, where it's just like uh, you go to school um, maybe once a week or once every two weeks, people come, everybody gets tested, and that minimizes our risk. Tests might not be accessible outside of school for some people. Well, we have to remember that when a test is performed, then it has to be evaluated in the lab. And we saw with the, with the return to school, our lab systems got rapidly overwhelmed by the number of tests that were needing to be run every day. And that's not helpful because then you end up getting a backlog of people who need to have contact tracing performed, who need to be notified and isolated and kept isolated, you know, as part of the contact tracing to then test all those high risk contacts as well. You know, and, and the challenge with asymptomatic testing of individuals who are not identified as being at high risk for COVID-19 is that when you get a positive test result, it's not clear when in the time course they are of their infection. We can have a test being positive for a kid for a couple of weeks, and it wouldn't be clear whether they were early in their course, uh, just with that positive test result, if they were early in their course of infection or later. What to me is uh, meaningful is if you have a case and, and you have all the high-risk contacts identified, then being able to test them will give you a sense of the spread of infection in that group, in that setting. What's important though, is when these high-risk contacts are getting tested, that the household is isolated pending the result of that contacts test. And then based on the results of that asymptomatic high-risk contact testing, um, reviewing the safety measures in schools as well as in that community, especially if there is a high prevalence of COVID-19 circulating in that community relative to other places. The pop-up testing in schools is an attractive model in terms of being student or community-centered because most individuals see schools as a trusted space. And so there is an increased acceptability and uptake of testing by the families you see close collaboration to meet the local needs. And that collaboration is with public health units, testing partners, the lab, as well as community engagement partners. So that if this is a neighborhood that serves a community that's ethnically diverse, where neither English nor French are the first language, then you can have like a local leadership group that, that engages in the 
it, like that that engages in the follow-up of the testing experience to speak with families about you know how well it was received and uh, to get a sense of what are the needs in that community and then we know that the nasopharyngeal swab, which is the gold standard of testing sites for the molecular test, is not acceptable to children. And therefore, families who've had their kids tested once or twice just don't want to have that third test and, uh, and want to stay home. Tell us that they, they'd rather keep the kid home for 10 days than to subject them to another test. But like I said, the more we test in terms of these individuals who are at risk, the more we can understand the spread of disease in that community. Uh, you know, we're seeking to increase the acceptability of the test by using alternate sites of specimen collection among the students, the adults, the adult household members who, or the older students can, who also participate in the pop-up testing should be able to tolerate the NP swab. Thank you so much, Dr. Thampi, for sharing your insight today. This is really helpful for students and parents and our diverse audience. So I really appreciate you being here. It was my pleasure. That was Dr. Nisha Thampi. You can find Wash Your Hands Brother John uploaded to the CHEO YouTube channel. If you'd like to stay updated until we post our next episode, you can follow us along at Juxta Magazine U of T on Instagram. And you can also let us know what conversations you'd like to hear next. Thanks for tuning in today and see you on our next episode.